Hello and welcome to the Ulster Rugby Roundup, Belfast Telegraph's one-stop shop for all things Ulster Rugby. I'm Adam McKendry, safely back from Toulouse uh, after a fantastic weekend. And I'm joined by another who just about made it back from Toulouse from the sounds of things. Hello, Jonathan. How are you? I'm good, Adam. I'm good. How are you? I am keeping very well after the weekend I had. If anybody follows me on Twitter, they'll know that I was being pulled from pillar to post from Toulouse on Saturday to Sheffield on Sunday for the Belfast Giants title win. But that's by the by. We're not here to talk about ice hockey. Um, We're here to talk about what sounds like an absolutely horrific return journey for yourself from Toulouse. (laughs) Talk us through what happened. Well, I hope that we're here to talk about the rugby in general rather than just the amount of time that I spent uh, in various different airports (laughs) and unplanned uh, visits to Spain of a weekend. No, no see, see, but, um, see, this, this is the kind of content that the people really want. They don't want to talk about the rugby. They want to talk about the fact that you ended up going to Mallorca instead of Toulouse. Sorry, sorry, <laughs> well, Mallorca after Toulouse. Yes, not, not, not instead of Toulouse, Mallorca from <laughs> Toulouse because uh, my flight got cancelled. I think my other option was to wait until around now, which is Tuesday afternoon, which I think was the next, uh, or sorry, the first direct flight to uh, Ireland after the game I think was is taking off around now um, so faced with uh, well I was going to say faced with another two days in Toulouse not that that would have been a hardship or anything but um, I feel like my wife would have expected me to come home at some stage so uh, I'm sure she would have understood just you know, <laughs> <laughs> off I went to Mallorca saw the beautiful sights of sunny Spain from uh, from the windows of the airport that I didn't actually leave and then um Eventually got back to Belfast, so all good in the end. Well, I, I appreciate your dedication to get back for the podcast recording today, because clearly <laughs> that's clearly that's what you had at the forefront of your mind whenever you were trying to get home, right? That's it. Otherwise, I would have just waited for the, that uh, Tuesday afternoon flight uh, to Dublin. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, like Toulouse Airport shocked me because I was flying back on the Saturday night in order to get there for the Giants game on the Sunday. And whenever I got there, like I had a bit of work to do, but I was planning, you know, all right, I'll get through security, get my work done. And then I'll go get, you know, a McDonald's or something or um, other fast food restaurants are available. I feel like I am contractually obliged to say. But I feel like we should also point out that when in France, other cuisine options are available. But uh... <laughs> I find a great cafe on the Saturday morning. Actually, I, I feel like I should give it a shout out. Um, it was it was absolutely delightful and met a few other Ulster fans there. Um, but anyway, got, got to Toulouse Airport and there were no food options whatsoever. And what was even worse was the, the one shop that was open decided to close at 8, 8 p.m. So I was sitting there still with two and a half hours to my flight thinking I'm going to go get some food here, wandered around the entire departure lounge and there was absolutely nothing open. So whatever French laws or restrictions are in place for airport eateries please change them because it's just absolutely inconvenient for everyone well i can tell you it was no better um to turn up at five when you turned up at five o'clock for a seven o'clock in the morning flight only to then be told that that flight was not happening but um <laughs> i actually I, I wrote my column this week about Toulouse airport um such as it wasn't so long that i spent well it's funny whenever i was reading your column it all suddenly started flooding back to me you know the the signs for Lestad and 
um, somebody had actually discarded a copy of In Toulouse magazine with DuPont on the front. And uh, if I'd had a bit more time, I should have read it. There was an awful lot of obviously Google Translate going on with uh, the various <laughs> publications that I was reading while in the while in Toulouse Airport, but all uh, all plastered with uh, Antoine Dupont and Roman Entomac. I think Google Translate came in very handy a lot of times over the weekend. Uh, but we are not here to talk about our travels. Uh, you can read Jonathan's column on the Belfast Telegraph website, by the way. It's very... not actually about Toulouse Airport. <laughs> it's just <laughs> what I use for my intro. Um, but we are here, of course, to talk about the game itself at the Stadium de Toulouse, uh, Toulouse 20, Ulster 26. Before we get into anything else, any arguments on the Juan Cruz Malia red card? No? Let's continue. Um, well, 28,000 <laughs> arguments, uh, Sadar, <laughs> but I don't really know where they were coming from. I think, as, uh, as William Barnes said, let's establish the facts. No chance of catching the ball. Reckless player lands on his head it was uh pretty much cut and dry i think you have to say i mean we were calling red card as soon as it happened up in the stand and i i don't know what the crowd were baying for but uh, yeah as you say it was it was pretty clear cut but i think uh, as we'll probably go on and discuss the french crowd were just very partisan one way on every decision i don't think wayne barnes could have made a call against toulouse that they wouldn't have disagreed with so um, I will say in the defence, I do think they did have an argument about the forward pass before Balakin's second try. Um, but they, they didn't They didn't even really complain about that. The biggest complaint they had was that Balakin was offside for the intercept. Which they could have negated had anyone decided to chase him back. <laughs> well, the, the, uh, the Toulouse physio was the, uh, the closest person to making a tackle. And then the next man to get anywhere near him was Wayne Barnes. If you watch Balakin... I genuinely think he spots the physio coming over and thinks for a second that it is a Toulouse player because he almost slows down a little bit, anticipating the contact. And then the physio keeps running past him and he kind of goes, oh, right, okay, that's not who I thought it was. <laughs> just keeps going uh, yeah, on under the yeah. post. Maybe maybe the physio should have been... I, well, sorry, I actually can't remember in my mind's eye if he was wearing a bright orange bib or not, but um, I don't know. I well, wouldn't. That- uh, I would never wish a collision, especially when somebody is the size and speed of Robert Balakin. But just for the sheer chaos of it all, it would have been interesting to see what would have happened if the physio had have actually taken Balakin out. Oh, it would have been great trauma. I have no I mean, idea. I have no idea if you can give a red card to a physio, but uh, yeah, I don't know if you can award a penalty try against a physio, which would have been a. Uh, the more pertinent thing, I suppose. Well, I, I know in football, I watched the video actually whenever I was in the airport coming home of uh, one of the substitutes in a football match blocking the ball from going out of play and it resulted in a penalty. So I would imagine you probably can give a penalty try, but just as you say, for the pure chaos, would have just loved to have seen him do it. But yes, as we say, it was effectively a tale of two wingers because I think given the start that Toulouse had, there were a lot of people who were maybe a bit fearful whenever uh, Emmanuel Miafu went over that this was maybe going to be the start of something a little bit horrific for Ulster. And then Malia got sent off. In, obviously, and mm-hmm. they could have scored before then. And you say a tale of two wingers. I know this has, it's actually quite rare that this has been talked about so much, but it has been talked about an awful lot. Balakin actually did much more without the ball than he did with the ball. And if it hadn't have been for his tackle, 
Um, I was trying to find it there in the highlights. It didn't, it didn't actually make the highlights. But if it hadn't been for his tackle before to lose his first try, they would have scored even earlier. Like that was mm-hmm. obviously the intercept's impressive. The run um, where he was tackled by Dupont, I think, would have been would have been remembered alongside Craig Gilroy and Munster 10 years ago. But genuinely, I think the most impressive thing were those three uh, first half tackles. Yeah, I mean, I think we've always known that Balakun's defence was good and it was almost that which he kind of based his game on whenever he first broke into the Ulster team. Like for the first for the first few months, you just sort of thought this guy is so reliable because he never misses a tackle and he's always in the right place defensively. And in some ways, there was never any doubts that he was he had lost that defensive ability, but it's good to see him still displaying it after you know reaching the heights that he has of being called up into the Ireland squad because we know his finishing now is elite but just that nice reminder of the defense is still elite was good and that that I think yeah is lost whenever you talk about hat trick hero Robert Balakoon and also made a big point of hat trick hero Robert Balakoon you think about what he actually does on defense arguably yeah I would say it's probably more important like what who, who did he chase down in the second half? Was it Mattis LaBelle whenever it looked like Toulouse were going to go the length of the pitch LaBelle from him? going down that uh, touchline. Yeah, I thought LaBelle had a really good game. So mm-hmm. Really, really dangerous. He was um, very unlucky to have that try chalked off. That was a, that yeah. was another great Toulouse score that, you know, it was, he, he, I'm not saying it should have been a try because DuPont does knock the ball on, but it's one of those ones where you're kind of like, you wish it did stand because it was just such a good score. Yeah, I mean, Toulouse played some really, really good stuff. Mm-hmm. Forget for a second, because I think it's, it is very easy to be like, oh, well, Toulouse were down to 14 men. Ulster had chances to win by more. And it's a straight, it's because of the two-legged thing, obviously, but there's this sort of strange narrative around the game in a way that it's not being seen for what it is as a victory away to Toulouse, Ulster's second knockout European away victory ever, regardless of the circumstances. But I mean, whether there's 14 or 15 men there, that is a properly, properly good rugby side. Um, I know they haven't been having the best season, but um, they've put a big focus on Europe, getting their big players back into the side. Obviously, Marshawn wasn't there, but um, getting the other guys back. And they put together some really, really good stuff. And Ulster had to be very good defensively to negate some of what they were doing. Think about that team that they had on at the end there. You look at the fact that they were able to bring on Cyril by Charlie Famoina, Anthony Jalanche in sort of the last half an hour, 20 minutes there to really add a punch. Um, so I, I know he. I'm saying they had the sub to their subs as well. Well, there was also that. Like <laughs> Alvin Placine and Sofian Gitoun, I think, played a combined 11 minutes between them, having been brought on in the 65th and 73rd minute, respectively, or, or something like that. So you almost forget about Gitoun because it's like it's what maybe three years ago since um, he was sort of the, the hot prospect. Like, who did he play for before Toulouse? Because I remember, was it Bayonne or someone like that? He was superb for them, and then he came to Toulouse, and he was he was a winger initially, and for some reason they transitioned him to a centre, and he just hasn't had quite the same impact in centre. I wonder if 
they would be better served putting him back to the wing. Yeah, I mean, I suppose they obviously had um, Colby there until very recently, so maybe didn't have the same need, I suppose, for uh, for a winger. But obviously, they'll have one suspended for this week, you imagine. So, mm. talk a bit more about Ulster. Where do you fall on this debate? Of is that just purely a good win? Even though Toulouse were down to fourteen men, is that a good win for Ulster away from home against the defending European champions? Do you think they maybe should be taking a bit of a bigger? Uh, lead back to Ravenhill this weekend because the fact that they played against 14 men for 69 minutes and especially given the fact that they have that 13 point lead with 11 minutes to go or so yes I think with 11 minutes to go I'm going to contradict myself in a minute here but with 11 (laughs) minutes to go they I think at 13 points up should have been thinking we can end this now, you know, we can kill this off now. That's not to say they weren't, but what followed was, in what was something of a back and forth game, what followed was a Toulouse purple patch. You mentioned the bench that came on, some of the guys that, that they brought on. I think that definitely added some energy to uh, reserves that were probably flagging at that stage. Not that Ulster's bench didn't play well. Like I thought Warwick had a really good game when he came on, uh, a few others as well. Um, but equally... <laughs> We shouldn't overlook the fight. As I've said, that one, it is a win over the uh, European champions away from home, meaning that um, regardless of circumstance, I think Ulster, a victory for Ulster was coming back to Belfast with this game alive, with the tie alive. And they've obviously done that. And probably most concerningly of all from an Ulster perspective was that, you know, having already lost to Munster, um, when they had 14 men for a long period and you can debate, I suppose, the merits or lack thereof of 14 against 15, especially when the 14, the, ma- the man that's been lost is in the back three. But they were winning by 13 points with 79 minutes and 10 seconds on the clock. And then there was a moment when you nearly thought they were going to lose, <laughs> which obviously tremendous, tremendous amounts of panic for us who are on deadline and have written an entire report. (laughs) Um, I was very fortunate. For the first time, I think, in my life, we got to that stage of the game where I hadn't written my full intro yet. So I was still sitting there going, it's fine. It doesn't matter what happens here. I'm still okay. But I could see you and Jerry Thornley sitting beside us the other side. I could see you both starting to panic a little bit. But like, don't score. Whatever you do, don't (laughs) score. Nathan Doak was your um, saviour on Saturday. I was going to say, I think we have to vote for our player of the year, our, our media player of the year in the next week or so. So I might just vote for Nathan Doke purely for not only getting back to make that tackle, but making the tackle in the fashion that he did, which I don't know if you've been able to watch it back, but the, he made the tackle with his arms at sort of elbow height, if you like, um, which really ensured that not only did he make the tackle, but he stopped the offload as well, because if they get the offloaded away, then it's a score under the posts. I, I, the one thing I, I want to add just about Ulster's play in general, I think, because I'm coming away thinking that they probably should have been a little bit further ahead going into this week. And I'm, look, it, I don't think it's going to deny that. I'm not, like, yeah. I'm not arguing with them on that. I think they definitely, they definitely will look at that and be like, we could be further ahead. It's just... My thing, I suppose, is that I think 
what's being lost in the uh, debate about whether they should be further ahead or not is still the fact that, and obviously against playing 14 men, it's still a good win. It's still a, for me, it's still a staging post win that I would put alongside Leinster and Claremont as regardless of how this season ends, as significant moments in the development of this team. Look, people will always tell you, once you get to the knockout stages of any competition, like you want the performance to go along with the result, of course. I'm, I'm not saying you're coming away jumping for joy if you scrape by by a point. But the only thing that really matters is the fact that Ulster are taking six, a six-point lead back home. And that that, to me, is automatically makes it a good win. But the problem is, I think, tactically, there were areas that Ulster really struggled in that game, especially in the first half and then in the last 10 minutes. Like, in the last 10 minutes, their indiscipline cost them, which is what led Toulouse get the first score. Uh, the second, the near try at the end was just brilliance from Toulouse. Um but, you know, there, there didn't seem to be any real thought process of let's pin them back in the corners. Like, I think we saw we saw definitely one 50-22 from Mike Lowry. We saw almost another one. Reinhard Elstad almost had one for Toulouse, which would have been the greatest 50-22 in its brief history. Um, so did we, did we have one from Tyg Byrne, which I think is the sort of clubhouse leader in this uh, That's right, yeah. whole season of this experiment? But I think that one would have... Uh, you know, you say about wanting that to lose um, score to stand because it just deserved it. Like, whenever he would sort of pull the laces back to kick that, I was like, what is he doing? <laughs> and then to see if bounce out for the 50-20, you're like, oh, yeah, well, fair play to him. But that obviously then it had been, uh, uh, been taken back in. That's what it was, wasn't it? Yeah, because I think... Just, what, just it, what, was it his own... Was it his own turnover? Like, did he win the turnover clean and immediately just turn and try and hoof it into the 22? Like, he he took it back over the halfway line. I know that. I know that's what's what was why it wasn't a 50-22. Yeah. But I'm trying to remember if it was him that actually made the clean turnover and then kicked it. But yeah, for, for me, I think Ulster just... Go, going up a man for that long is tough to play in because there's so much expectation on you to go on and win it. But I think Ulster never really probed in behind Toulouse. They never really tried to pin them back, especially in those last 10 minutes. And I think one of the other things that I I would disagree with how they approached the game, they approached it as if it was a normal game. So anytime they got a penalty, it went into the corner because that's what Ulster do. And in an ordinary game, I don't have a problem with that because that is what they've been doing all year. It's consistent with what they've been doing all year and that is how they play. And it works for them 100%. I'm not going to disagree. But in a game where you know you have a second leg coming up and it is at home, you've got to keep the scoreboard ticking over, surely. Like we saw Ramos going for a kick from quite far out wide that was given just inside the 22. Like in any other game, I would say Toulouse go to the corner. But Ramos going for the posts, I think, signaled that Toulouse were treating this slightly differently. So for me, you know, especially with the line-out issues that Ulster were having, that's probably one of the worst line-out performances I've seen from Ulster, certainly this season and probably for the last few seasons, especially since Dan McFarlane took over. At some point, surely you've got to look at the posts and say, we've got to keep the scoreboard ticking over here. And we've got to remember that at worst, 
we're going to take something back to back to Belfast next week. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, I think they played it as a normal game. I, again, sort of like we, in the same way that we talked about two or three weeks ago, if you're going to count all the uh, penalties that they could have kicked but didn't, you do have to take away the points from Warwick's try, which came from going to the corner. But um, I did think that was strange because we saw it a lot more, I think, in some of the other games than others where teams were clearly altering their tactics. I actually thought that we may have even seen more drop goals and things like that, given the added value of three points, but it didn't really transpire. I think it's maybe a skill that's just maybe been lost in the game. I don't even know if players really practice it that much anymore. But Well, I remember French teams used to be massive components of, yeah. or, or proponents, sorry, of going for the drop goal. And that's really dropped off. Like I, I remember uh, David Shkrela putting one over for Claremont against Ulster at Ravenhill. And I remember turning to my dad and saying, why do Ulster not go for drop goals? And he says, it's just a French thing. You know, it's, <laughs> we, do, we don't do that. That's a French thing. So like we, we had it in the, wasn't it the Exeter game? Yeah. Steenson stuck year, over a great Dr. drop Steenson goal. Steenson knocked one over and Jackson and then, knocked one over in response. Yeah. <laughs> That's the drama <laughs> that you need. Ulster lost one as well, didn't they? Uh, Duncan Weir knocking or popping one over, but um, mm-hmm. yeah, that was the Edinburgh game a few years yeah, ago yeah. In, the, in the league. Just it, it is just an interesting look at how both teams approached it. You know, Ulster very clearly just treating it as a one-off game. And look, I'm sure if it was in the latter stages of the game, they were trailing by two points and they got a penalty right in front of the posts. I think at that point, you probably have seen Cooney or, or Doker, whichever one was on at that point. You probably have seen them kick it over. But especially whenever the line-out was going the way it was, and look, I'm not the best at dissecting why line-outs don't work, but it seemed like Toulouse just had every single call sussed out. They always had someone competing. It was never a case of... Ulster getting up and, and getting clean ball. There was always a Toulouse player there ready to compete. At some point, surely you've got to look at it and go, even if we miss the posts with the kick, we're getting the ball back from the 22 dropout and we can reset from there. So it'll be interesting to see actually if they change that going into this weekend's second leg because the dynamics completely change going into the latter stages of that game because you don't have another leg to look forward to. This is now the end game, so to speak. Effectively, you're starting Ulster at 6-0, but as Dan McFarlane says, in 15 seconds, that can be erased. Well, that's why I don't think we'll see a change in approach this week, and I'd say you probably agree. I think they will um, They will treat this essentially like it's nil each and they're trying to win the game because against a different team and you know, Toulouse are probably up there with, I guess, Harlequins as a team that can just score in bunches. But I don't think it's a matter of looking at this and saying, right, we're into the second half now and we're up by six. Do we um, try and build that into a two-score advantage and try and see it out from there? Because as we saw in the last, whatever that would be, 70 seconds on Saturday, Toulouse can you know, could, didn't, but could have scored 14 points. So I think you just have, and I don't want this to sound oversimplistic, but I think you just have to turn this into one of those Ravenhill European Knights French team coming over, 
make it a bit hostile. If the weather is anything like it is right now, that's going to suit. I assume, okay. I assume it's tipping it down with you. It is absolutely <laughs> chopping it down. You know, that, that'll make for a heavy pitch, which won't suit Toulouse either. It doesn't necessarily suit Ulster most of the time, but this could be one of those games where it would. You know, you. I know it's not sold out yet, which I suppose we've talked about that being a touch curious, given um, the last time there was knockout European rugby here. Um, people couldn't get a ticket for love nor money. But um, I would expect that given the way Saturday went, that we will see the biggest crowd that there's been post-COVID and just have it be, I suppose, as uh, inhospitable is maybe not the right word, but <laughs> as vocal and raucous a home support as Toulouse had last week. I've got to say, I'm very surprised the game isn't sold out. I understand that people were possibly waiting until the result of Saturday to determine whether it was worth going down or not, but... Even so, you think of the players that should be coming to Ravenhill on Saturday night, the chance to see DuPont up close, chance to see Entomac, as we mentioned, by Famuina, some of those guys in the back line, like uh, LaBelle and Ramos. Like This is, this is a chance that you don't know if you're going to get again anytime soon. And it's a chance to see them without paying the massive premium that you have to in the Six Nations, which only comes around every other year because of how the schedule works. So I I can't believe this game isn't sold out already. Now, we are recording on Tuesday afternoon, so by the time you're listening to this, it, it might be sold out. But as of right now, you could still buy a ticket. I suppose there is a sort of need to acknowledge the the cost of living crisis as well. It'll be interesting to see how that affects specifically sports teams in Ireland because public transport isn't an option, basically, if you live outside of Belfast. So the cost of fuel plays into it. You know, if you're coming from, say, the Northwest, then you're talking about not how much the ticket costs so much as how much the fuel to get there and back is going to cost. That might be playing into it, I guess. Originally, it sort of popped into my head that maybe the people that had wanted to see DuPont, you know, also were suffering a bit from the fact that he had played here so recently. But then there was only 500 people at that game. There? So, um, yeah, it's nothing to do with that. Yeah, you um, forget how far we've come in terms of crowd sizes. Like, that's, yeah, exactly, yeah. that's comfortably the biggest crowd that I've been to in Toulouse since the pandemic started. You've been to the Aviva, so it's slightly different for you, but... Well, I would say <laughs> this could be um, selective memory, I guess, but it, it felt like Toulouse was twice as loud with half the crowd. Um, I've got to say the, the atmosphere was absolutely outstanding and we are unfortunate that neither of us have managed to get to the Ernest Vallon yet and I kind of had mixed feelings about this game being at the Stadium de Toulouse because it was kind of like, okay, bigger stadium and... I was chatting to one of the French journalists before the game and he was saying how the players love playing in the stadium because it just feels like it's a bigger game because it's a bigger venue. But at the same time, you kind of want to go to the ground that has more history, the one that Ulster have played at before, and you want to just experience almost the Stade Toulousaine experience instead of the the Toulouse Football Club experience. But I would say Toulouse is maybe one 
possibly the only, I can't really think of too many more, where you do kind of get the best of both worlds, though, because all, you know, all those sort of famous Toulouse knockout victories and one famous victory for Leinster as well, of course, we shouldn't forget, were in the stadium, you know, and it does mm. give that sort of sense of a link back to the great Toulouse teams of the first decade of the century. And then even just the fact that Toulouse are back at that stadium is sort of both a sign of their renaissance as the best club in Europe and also a sign that we are thankfully coming out the other side of COVID, as you say, with crowd sizes, because, you know, past games over the last um, two seasons would have been at this stadium, if not for uh, the lack the lack of need for it to go to this stadium because it wasn't the crowd alliances. So I've got to say Toulouse is a fantastic city. If you can get over to it, I would very strongly recommend. And it was great to see so many Ulster fans over. I think someone was saying to me, they reckon there was around a thousand. I'd, I don't know if there, there was an exact figure of how many were over, but they made themselves loud and proud. They were about to lose all of Saturday morning and Saturday afternoon. So um, fantastic job from them and uh, hopefully hopefully we'll draw to lose again I got my rugby ball as is tradition now with every away game we go to it is sitting proudly behind me along my collection um, so looking ahead they then to created a, a song for Robert Balakun so which gave me my intro for Monday's paper so I was thankful for their presence anyway care to give us a rendition <laughs> I wouldn't I wouldn't <laughs> I heard a fair few, a fair few by time on Saturday night, but uh, no, I'll not sing. How do you think this Saturday's game is going to go then? Toulouse are naturally going to have a bit of a fire under them after their perceived injustice last week at the hands of Wayne Barnes. Ulster will have a massive test on their hands. Do you think almost it's going to be a bigger test this week than it was last week? Given the way the game went, I think it absolutely it absolutely will be. The only thing I would say in uh, spite of that is for all the talk about whether Ulster could have come back with a better lead, we also know that they can play better as well. Um, we know that they have better performances in them. We've seen better performances from them this season already. Not, uh, not a massive amount, but um, certainly I don't think they were as good in that game as they were maybe in the Claremont game? No, the, the Claremont game is probably their best performance of the season. That I would say Ulster were maybe a, at a 7 out of 10 in Toulouse. Like that, they were good. They were good in patches, but for long patches of that game, they were having to weather a significant storm from a team that only had 14 men. So I think if Ulster... I think Toulouse, obviously, with 15 men are going to be better, but I think if Ulster play as well as we know they can, as well as we have seen them play in some European games over the neck, oh, sorry, over the last three or four years, or yeah, four years, however long Dan's been here, um, four years. I think that they have it in them to win. I think that they, I do believe that they are at a point now where they wouldn't fear playing anybody in Ravenhill, I don't think. The flip side of that is Toulouse have to win by seven, and they've won by seven here very recently, so they're going to come over knowing that they can do it as well, so it's set up to be a really, really good game. To you know, to be sat here on Tuesday and already be looking forward to it um, probably shows you just how 
I'll use a phrase that has been used plenty over the last week. How finely poised things are. That's the journalist in you coming out with phrases like that. It's um, one of those phrases that only journalists use. It's never <laughs> actually been used in normal conversation. Well, it's now been used in a podcast, so we're slowly making it mainstream here. Thanks to you. It's like, it's like the word, albeit, albeit, word I'll be used apart from um, to say albeit with uh, a game in hand. Well, I would use albeit sometimes in my normal vocabulary. Maybe I'm just weird. <laughs> Um, some breaking news as we record this, Ulster have released a medical update. Uh, as we suspected, Ben Moxham has sustained a concussion after that challenge by Juan Cruz Malia. Uh, Tom Stewart also out. He suffered a hamstring injury and is unavailable for selection. But the most interesting one for me is listed among the current injured players who hasn't been listed there before is Jack McGrath, who is in there with a hip injury, which I don't think was in previous medical updates and has now been added in without any explanation as to when or where he got it. Um, well, he wasn't in South Africa, obviously, um, but was not listed on the report of new injuries while going to or prior to going to South Africa. To be fair, Eric O'Sullivan and Andy Wark have been doing a, a stellar job at loose head prop, and I know you did that great piece last week on Wark getting his 150th cap and just charting his journey to this point, and I think it was almost poetic that he was the one who scored the uh, the try off the back of that mall on Saturday and that it was a just reward. Spent, uh, time doing that piece last week only from the way on the bench I can tell you I was glad for it at least. <laughs> As has been the case a lot of times this season. <laughs> Basically if I'm going to write an origin feature you better not expect to play the next week because you're not going to. You may start giving players a call and just giving them the bad news. You know. Just if anybody wants a week off, just get in touch. I'll write a big feature about you during the week and then you'll be out of the team the next week. Like if you have something coming up, you know, a family wedding or something that clashes with a game. Interestingly, I think I'm more interested to see what the Toulouse team is for Saturday because I'm not sure Ulster will make too many changes. Moxham will be out and I'm going to guess that McElroy would be back. I know concussions and the return to play protocols can be a bit hit and miss in terms of how quickly players can come back, depending on how severe their concussion was. But um, if you have McElroy back, I would imagine that's a straight swap there. But I can't see any other changes outside of that. Maybe maybe you bring Jordy Murphy into the back row, maybe the loose head switch. But outside of that, I'm not sure you're making too many changes to the team besides that. No, I think at this stage with the players that are available and the players that are injured by and large having been long-term injured, I think we're seeing what we saw really in 2018-19 of there's a pretty settled team here. And I understand that that's not that it's not what Ulster wants, but you know they want to give the... Uh, they want the impression that there's a battle for every place. And it's not that there isn't good depth there because there is, but like, as you say, with the exception of the loose heads and possibly Jordy, I can't see any other changes to that uh, 15 made by choice. Obviously, Um, McElroy being back would be a big boost um, if he could take the place of Moxham. Otherwise, you're talking about uh, Rob Little, who obviously played 70 minutes there. On Saturday, anyway, I thought he had a decent game whenever he came on. Although I suppose it is, I think Rob Little's having a good season. Yeah, it's it's a little bit of a tough one to decide though, purely because 
you know, you, you've come on and you're playing against an opposition who only have two players in their back three. So, um, but no, I, I thought he had a decent game. The good news is... Sorry, I think that is a decision as well to make, obviously. But, you know, we've seen, I suppose, the pecking order seems to be fairly established throughout the course of the season. I think that's fair to say. Mm. Well, we'll finish our Toulouse chat with some great news, which is that it's not going to be raining on Saturday, according to weather.com, who we were going to hold to account if this is not true. Apparently, it's going to be partially sunny skies with a very balmy temperature of 8 degrees Celsius. So, well, to be fair, the weather told me it was going to be 22 degrees in Toulouse on Saturday, and uh, or sorry, on Friday night, and it very much was not. Yeah, it was quite funny whenever we first met up on the Saturday you were in a jacket and shirt. I was in a coat, a hoodie, and a t-shirt. So we were definitely prepared for two very different extremes in terms of weather. Well, I should have uh, brought the shorts and t-shirts for my brief sojourn to uh, sunny southern Spain, but uh, not to know. You can follow all of the action from Ravenhill on Saturday night on the Belfast Telegraph website. It will be myself live blogging the game from 7 o'clock with an 8 o'clock kickoff. Some contract news to bring you from Ulster Rugby HQ. And we've got two new three-year deals for both Robert Balakoon, fresh off his hat-trick heroism and three tackle heroism, which I feel I've got to mention now after bigging it up earlier. Um, and also for center Stuart Murr, although I'm not sure I can call him center anymore. He's more center stroke wing stroke fullback, and he'll probably end up playing in the front row at some point as well. Um, never rule it out. Uh, both players are signed up to 2025, but the most interesting part of this is that neither player was out of contract at the end of the season both players still had, I think it was one year to go for both of them, uh, but Ulster have made the move to get them tied down to contracts or longer term contracts slightly earlier. Johnny, what do you make of that? I think it's a very interesting trend because it's not something that we see an awful lot of in rugby. I would be interested to know maybe why we don't see an awful lot of it in rugby because it could theoretically be because of the attrition rate in rugby, it's not been traditionally seen as a good value bet to give people long-term contracts and especially to re-up their contracts before it's necessary to do so because we see it an awful lot in other sports. Well, I suppose in rugby there's less poaching, for want of a better word, whenever players are still on contract. You know, it's not like football where one club will approach another club and say, we will pay you X million pounds for this player, which is essentially buying them out of their contract as opposed to, you know, an, an actual fee for them. Whereas yeah, in rugby, in rugby, there's almost like a gentleman's agreement of if a player is in contract, he's ours, unless we decide that we are going to actively make him available. And that's all true for sure. But it's interesting, I think, from the player perspective as well. Because obviously, and you know, we've seen even in the past week with the uh, with the sad Dan Levy news, like anything can happen at any time on a rugby field. So I suppose you're balancing that sort of long term security about for when you're a young player of like how much is your value going to uh, rise in the years to come. So it's quite it's quite an interesting balance, I think, to players 
will have to strike if this is the kind of practice that we're going to see more of. Because obviously, so many of Ulster's young players are sort of in that uh, in that boat. Because the hope, anyway, is that um, you've got maybe ten players, say off the top of my head, that figure to be better the next year than they are this year for several years to come. Hopefully, I think it's interesting that the two of them are both backs and. Certainly the player that you would say this season you're maybe looking at it as a comparison is Jacob Stockdale, someone who whose stock rose so dramatically, got onto a central contract and is now out injured. Now look, this is this is completely out of his control. I'm I'm not saying Jacob is at fault for being injured, but whenever you have a teammate who you're looking at each day and you're saying you are someone who was riding on the crest of a wave. You got your central contract. You earned you like he earned his central contract for some outstanding performances with club and country. But now you know your value only drops as you're as you're sitting on the sidelines. So you wonder how much that factored in of make your money while you still can. Uh, but good to see that Ulster are making sure that their homegrown talent is tied down long term and. Certainly, Balakun is a player who they're probably going to build a lot of their back play around. And Murr has developed into a player who is so versatile that he's going to play a lot of minutes each year. And I certainly think that the ceiling is very high for him in terms of where he could go. Like, remember that these guys are still young. They're both uh, they're both under twenty four. I, be- I believe Balakun is twenty four, and okay, Murr is twenty four. Yeah, yeah, Murr is twenty two off the top of my head. Um, so their best years are still ahead of them, and it's another uh, it's another encouraging sign. I mean, nobody leaves anyway. To be fair, like, but you know. Oh, uh, do you want me to start listing players? <laughs> if you want to list players that Ulster wanted to keep that um, have left that were Irish qualified, then absolutely go ahead. <laughs> we'll leave that for that. That's an off-season podcast plan. There's not. There's nothing wrong with a bit of excitement around contract news. People can get excited about whatever they want, but I'm ha- I'm happy for the players, but like nobody ever goes anywhere anyway, do they? Just to round off a bit of Champions Cup talk, looking at the legs that took place last week, we're going into the second legs with a variety of different scorelines. I think certainly all the Irish teams are still in very tight ties. You know, Leinster have a five-point lead over Connacht, but obviously Leinster have home advantage, which is massive. We all know Ulster's situation. We've just talked about it for half an hour. Um, Munster take a five-point deficit back to Toman Park against the Exeter Chiefs. But looking elsewhere, I think it's very intriguing that the two-legged system doesn't really seem to have worked very well. You know, Leicester taking a 19-point lead home against Claremont. Rassing are taking a 13-point lead home to Stade Francais. La Rochelle are taking an 18-point lead against Bordeaux, back to the Stade Marcel de Flandre. Quinns are 14 points down, going back to the Twickenham Stoop against Montpellier. 
I would say that one's maybe still in the balance because we all know how Montpellier are away. They seem to be two different teams at home and away. The only beat by 70 odd points earlier in the season, which cannot be <laughs> cannot be forgotten about somebody that we're talking about as a potential quarterfinalist in Europe. To be fair, I would like to hope Montpellier might send a slightly stronger team to the stoop than they did to the RDS, but you really never know with the French. Like they are long to themselves, aren't they? Yeah, but I think it is a strange scenario that we've landed in because I obviously wrote a column last week saying that I hated this and it was silly. And I saw a few columns in other papers appear being like talking about the positives and high change is a good thing. And, um, you know, it's dinosaurs that don't like change. I still disagree with this. I still think if it's not broke, don't fix it. I still think we can't forget how rubbish the pool stages have become when they used to be great in order to squeeze in more knockout rugby. Sounds like such a dinosaur view, John. (laughs) (laughs) That's what happens when you're 34. Um, (laughs) But whenever I sort of, (laughs) at the end of the Ulster game, I was like, well, that is good. And I am glad that I get to see another 80 minutes of that. I was like, am I changing my opinion? And then I thought about it more. And I was like, no, this is just being Irish-centric about it. Because the monster game is, to use that phrase again, finally poised. The Ulster tie is really hanging in the balance. Leinster will put out Connacht, but it's not a foregone conclusion. But like five out of eight ties is not a good return. Like there are three games there that in my mind are not worth watching because it may as it's not, it's not competitive. Yeah, like I've I've noted down La Rochelle, Leicester, and Racing are all through. So there's there's three games that instantly are turnoffs. And uh, I'm gonna steal something you said whenever we were planning this, but like the Racing Stab Francais game is the only game on Sunday. You're not gonna tune into any rugby at all on Sunday because you don't want to watch that game because it's That's already over. I mean, they've had that sort of Easter Sunday dinner rugby conflict in years gone by <laughs> there's none of that this year because you can just forget about the rugby on Easter Sunday I, I would then say like Le- Leinster Connacht two Irish provinces going head to head you can never say it's definitely done but Leinster at home at the Aviva Stadium they know how to get it done so you would imagine that one is you, you would tip the scales heavily in Leinster's favour in that one let's put it that way so you'd really only say that going into the second legs, half of the ties are genuinely in the balance. And I would I would say that, or so, sorry, sorry, I would only say three are in the balance, which are Bristol Sale, Munster Exeter, Ulster Toulouse, because I probably lump in Quinn's Montpellier is more or less over. Look, we can debate how good Montpellier are away from home, but you would like to think that they would be able to defend a 14-point lead. Maybe not, but um, I would certainly say that I would have Montpellier as favourites in that one to progress. So you're, you're going into the second legs of the last 16 with three of your eight ties genuinely in the balance. That, to me, is not a good system at all. Whenever I, I think you, European rugby won't want anybody to do the comparison that I'm going to do. But you've got to compare it to the Champions League football because this is the exact same format. 
in the Champions League, you've at least got most of the ties will be somewhat in the balance going into the second leg. All right, you get a few ties that end up being blowouts because initially in the Champions League, you have some teams that manage to make it through, but they're not going to be competitive. In rugby, it's just not a system that works. No, I agree because I think that um, I was having this conversation with my brother there last week. I think in rugby, maybe as we saw evidence of this week, I think three score wins and especially three score wins for an away side are much more common than three goal wins in football. Mm-hmm. So I think it's not that we couldn't have predicted this happening. The same thing happened in the last 16 last year. There were an awful lot of away wins and there were an awful lot of big wins. So it didn't work as advertised. And it's going to be one of these things where, unfortunately, it's not a case of the proof is in the pudding because it's just going to be how much money it makes. And broadcasters will continue to buy rights for more knockout games, regardless, I suppose, in the short term of how many people are watching them. So, for instance, I do not imagine that the broadcasting the broadcasters will get full value out of what they paid for for these extra knockout games purely because even as much like, you know, we're sat on a rugby podcast, but we're still talking about how we're just not going to bother really watching the game that's on Sunday. So, you know, we'll find something else better to do with our time. And if enough people do that, then it obviously ceases to be of the value that um, broadcasters are paying for it. Well, here's hoping Stade Francais prove us all wrong and score two quick tries on Sunday and we're scrambling for the remote to try and convince our partners to, <laughs> that this is essential viewing. So just enough time left to mention the Ireland women and what a result they had at the weekend in the TikTok Women's Six Nations, which I still am not used to saying at all. 29-8 win over Italy at Musgrave Park down in Cork. Ulster's Neve Jones on the score sheet. But I think given that the two games that they had to start the, the tournament against uh, Wales and France, there was a bit of frustration coming out of both of those games for different reasons. And uh, I know Lucy Mulhall said in the build-up to the game that they were desperate to put at least one win on the board this season. Delighted to see them get over the line and uh, hopefully this is something that they can kick on from because you know 20 point 21 point win is nothing to be sniffed at especially against a team that is going to a world cup whenever Ireland aren't yeah exactly just whenever you mentioned Dave Jones there I saw a stat there can't remember who from sorry but I saw a stat there the other day that she's made 50 of 50 um, tackles so far in the Six Nations it must be yeah, it must think, be a real Ulster thing, you know. Tom O'Toole's so good at tackling for the men's senior team. Neve Jones doesn't miss a tackle for <laughs> the Ireland women's team. Like Ulster front rowers. Did you remember? Yeah, like Rob Herring had a had a crazy streak going at one point as well a few years back. But mm. um, yeah, as you say, massively, massively important to get that win, especially knowing what's coming down the track. With uh, obviously this is the break week, but the only break week in the women's Six Nations. Um, to then have England here, naturally enough, the best side in the world. It's going to be interesting, I suppose, to see how they adapt now without their sevens players. You know, they could lose five, six, seven of that um, match day 23, depending on selection for the sevens for those last two games. So that's not ideal, obviously. It's been talked about plenty um, over the last number of years, the balance between the two. But 
you know, in this instance, we are talking about players that are actually contracted to the sevens. So um, an imperfect system, but one that was always going to be the case. You know, Greg McWilliams will have known this from quite far out, I suppose. But um, we're going to have to expose some new players to the panel and new players to uh, the challenges of the Six Nations, both against England and then Scotland and uh, Belfast there at the end of the month. Certainly going to be a baptism of fire dropping them in against England. And I think the whole contract issue for me, whenever you see players going off to play in another competition instead of the Six Nations, just doesn't quite sit right with you, does it? Um, so I, I understand that they're contracted to the Seven, so that like there's no real choice in the matter here. But I think if you're looking at where Ireland need to progress, and especially if they're talking about trying to bridge the gap a bit to France and England, you can't have players who are going to up sticks in the middle of a, a Six Nations and go off and play in another tournament because they're not contracted to the 15s game. There's got to be a distinction of, well, if we want to be a team that competes in the Six Nations, we have to have our best players available for the Six Nations. So certainly I, I would imagine that's something that Greg McWilliams is going to bring up with David Nisifora whenever they uh, whenever they next have their meeting, if he hasn't done it already. And I, I would imagine that's probably an area that they'll want to get sorted. Yeah, it's like it's obviously just as we said, far from ideal. We've seen this going back years and years and years and years. Play players um, leaving the middle of the Six Nations. This was famously in that game before France. But um, I think that it is obviously one drawback of the Six Nations getting its own window outside of the men's Six Nations. And I, th- it's obviously hard to judge very much in the moment, but I do feel like that has been a success. I do feel like it's got more coverage. I do feel like there's been more eyeballs. I feel like there's been more chat about it. Absolutely. This year than any other year. But the drawback is that you are going up against the Sevens when you, I suppose, had more of a window uninterrupted by the Sevens. So, like anything, it's a balancing act. But if you have a shallow, shallower pool of players, which Ireland obviously do, um, then it's going to have a big impact. And especially when you don't have 15s contracts, but you do have sevens contracts. And that is all the time we have for this week. Fortunately, no flights required either to or from Ravenhill for the game on Saturday, but certainly another massive game in prospect that we're looking forward to, the Heineken Champions Cup, last 16 second leg against Toulouse for Ulster. Six points in it, going to be a cracker. As I said earlier, you can follow all the action on the Belfast Telegraph website. I shall be live blogging it at a 7 o'clock start for the 8pm kickoff. But until then, and until we see you next week on the Ulster Rugby Roundup, thank you very much for joining me, John. Cheers, thank you. And thank you very much to all of you for listening. Stay safe and we'll see you soon.